Hello from Vancouver. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just got off the Skype phone with Joan Key to talk about her really beautiful new book, Contemporary Korean Art, Tan Kwa and the Urgency of Method. This came out in 2013 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, this is not only a beautiful book, it's just a gorgeous object. It's also an exceptionally creative and very thoughtfully constructed written and conceptualized study of a fascinating um, but very little studied or understudied movement of um, contemporary art in Korea. So you'll hear a lot about this over the course of the interview, and um, I'll let you get to that soon. But just broadly speaking, this is a book that's not just about Korean artists, and it's not just about art in Korea um, by artists who are identifying as Korean. It's also a book about how people, how artists have materialized interests and conceptions of authorship and viewership, of time, of space, of sort of practice and materiality. And so it's a book that speaks much more broadly than simply to Um, or only to, or even at all to, an area studies-specific audience. So this is a book for you, not only if you're interested in modern Korea, contemporary Korea, but also if you're simply just interested in um, work with things and objects, contemporary art, the history of artists and painting and material studies. Um, It's also very very interestingly and carefully engaged with the political framing and political context in which these practices are taking place. So it's a fascinating study. Again, it's a beautiful book and a beautiful study, and I really enjoy talking with Joan about it. So I hope you do too, and I hope you have a chance um, to take a look at the book and ideally to read it. Enjoy, and thanks for joining us. I'm here today to talk with Joan Key about her recent book, Contemporary Korean Art, Tan Sekwa and the Urgency of Method. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Joan. Congratulations on a gorgeous and really fascinating book. And thanks very much for negotiating the time difference between London and Vancouver and being here to talk with me today. I'm really excited. Well, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. So, Joan, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about how you came to work on the history of modern Korean art? Oh, well, that's a very good question. So uh, to get to, in, in some ways, it's really a question about how is it that, say, someone like me would even get to study contemporary Asian art, because, say, uh, by the time I graduated from university in the late 1990s, it wasn't really considered a legitimate subfield within art history. So uh, a particular very well-known curator at a very well-known institution in New York, who, of course, shall remain nameless, once told me, why don't you study real Asian art? So the question, thereby implying that somehow art essentially made after the 20th century was not considered a valid field of study, that somehow it was necessarily um, derivative of what had taken place previously. And this is not tr- this is true not only for, say, Korean art, but really for anyone working in what might be called Asian art generally. Uh, so a lot of uh, sort of the, the difficulty was even trying to find a graduate program that would allow for the study of this kind of material, which actually really didn't take place until uh, well into the, the the first years of the 21st century, really. And this is something that's uh, true not only for myself, but many of my uh, peers who also work in this general field of modern Asian art. Uh, but in terms of, say, Korean art, it's a, even more of a hard sell as one can imagine, again, because Korea is not as prominent as some of its colleagues, or sorry, its counterparts, uh, in the general framework of area studies. So we think of China, Japan, India, now Korea, Southeast, many countries in Southeast Asia. These areas are still people who work in these areas still have quite a quite an upward sort of an uphill battle when it comes to figuring out what their place is going to be not only in the regional studies framework but also the humanities in, in general mm-hmm. 
So the book um, that we're talking about today is about, as the title indicates, Tan Sekwa, which was mm-hmm. an important art movement in the history of contemporary art in Korea. And you talk, it's just, it's not only a beautiful book um, just as an object, but it's also a book that really gets inside, opens up and explores this concept. Now, Tan Sekwa is known, as you um, tell us early in the book, as Korean monochrome painting. And the book also considers what it means and what it has meant to think and write and talk about something called something like something conceptualized as Korean painting. So it's about this movement, but it's also about much, much, much more than simply um, a given body of work. So how did you come to work on this particular focus for the book? And, and how did you come to decide to shape the book into this kind of structured object? Mm-hmm. Okay. So essentially, that's uh, several questions in one. The first question is, why Tan Sequa? The simple answer is that because I, I think it's great work. That's really what it boils down to. And this is something that for me uh, informs everything I do is that it's not necessarily where the artist is from or where the artwork uh, happens to be situated. If it's great, if it's compelling, if the if the, the, the direct visual experience has something interesting to say to a larger audience, that's what I'm going to work on. Now, in terms of, say, the structure of the book, uh, that was quite a challenge because one of the real issues in thinking about, say, not just Korean art, but non-Western modern arts generally, is this overwhelming need to want to contextualize where the work is from. So the politics, the, the, the conditions of society at the time, where the artists were educated. And so by the time you get to talking about the artwork, it kind of almost becomes a footnote or or in sort of the best case scenario, a symptom of all this context that has been described. So in terms of the structure of the book, it was very important that every chapter really included very, very close uh, readings of the artwork that was being discussed. Because one of the interesting things about Tanzaqua is that it really wasn't a consolidated movement in the sense that uh, the artist uh, never uh, never banded into an official group. They had no manifesto, no declaration. Yes, they would show together. Yes, they knew of each other. But it was really... It, it was really in many ways a retroactively applied term to a body of work that happened to emerge at the same time that also shared lots of the same commitments to process, to uh, the material properties of painting, to this idea of abstraction, to, say, a longer history of Korean modern art that was really based on this uh, sort of this almost push and pull tension between what was considered ink painting versus oil painting. So uh, a lot of the challenge of writing this particular book was one, how is it that one can think about artworks as themselves being able to produce or generate context versus having the context imposed onto the artwork and expecting the artwork to be an allegory of that context. And you talk early on in the book as well about your choices regarding the narrative structure um, and the really interesting ways that, uh, in many ways, the both the structure of the chapters and the movement from chapter to chapter really gets inside and pulls out from the works themselves, which remain central, uh, a kind of methodology, a conceptual apparatus that we'll talk about later. So there's this idea of points and lines that becomes really, really important to the work of some of the people you're talking about and also becomes a really important way of structuring the book as a whole. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Now, the book did start out as a dissertation, or at least this is the first monograph that began some part of its life um, at the dissertation stage. So can you talk a little bit for us about that transition? Were there any major transformations either in the way you were conceptualizing or in the way you were structuring um, the project from one stage to the other? The book is has very little resemblance to the dissertation. Um, the dissertation, in many ways, had a very experimental structure. It had only three parts, and as the first part was uh, basically 
an accumulation of close readings of the artworks. The middle part then tried to weave in those close readings and kind of expand uh, sort of almost like a rhizome into then thinking about things like uh, politics, society, culture, uh, uh, geography. And then the third chapter then tried to gather all of those different strands together and think about this body of work in relation to its Euro-American counterparts. I think for a dissertation, that kind of structure was fine, simply because, again, you're writing for a very select audience, five, six members of one's dissertation committee. It will uh, That's pretty much how it will end. Of course, with a book, uh, things such as marketing, things such as uh, legibility, things such as how do you make this appeal to a non-specialist audience, these are all concerns that um, in the end uh, made me really give up that kind of experimental structure and go for of a more conventional the five or was five chapter uh, five chapter format. But the one thing is, I did one thing I really didn't want to give up was this idea of being able to expand and then focus, uh, because a lot of was especially a lot of these kinds of monographs that really deal with one particular subject at great depths is that there's a real sort of. Um, temptation to think of it as to or to parse it into five separate case studies without necessarily thinking about the links between those case studies um, outside of say chronological sequence or say um, uh, what is it uh, 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 even even uh, even thematic concerns so one of the issues was in ch- in transforming this from a dissertation to a book is well how does one structure it in such a way that you kind of retain that organic quality without say sacrificing the legibility mm-hmm. so Great. Thank you so much. So this is a great prologue, and let's actually get right into it. Um, With introduction, the urgency of method. Now, you describe early on in the book, I think on the first page, Tansequa as a kind of loose constellation, these are your words, of mostly large abstract paintings done in white, black, brown, and other neutral colors made by Korean artists from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. And I mentioned that just to situate us for listeners who may not be familiar with this body of work. Now, these works were often not called paintings or artworks, but methods. And since method is in the title, this, this is a um, running theme throughout the book. Can you talk a little bit about what this means to consider Tansequa as method and the importance of method to it, rather than simply thinking of these pieces as, as works or as paintings? Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the the works are also paintings, uh, but uh, the reason why met, the word method has so much weight in this book is because one, one, th- one thing one sees in the mid-1970s is a real shift from thinking about what is it that artworks mean to how is it that artworks exist. Now, that in- interest in how has a lot to do with things like process, things like, again, how do materials interact with one another, but it also has to do with this issue of, okay, so these artists are all living in Korea, really just as marginal a place in the international art world as one could possibly get, is that in many ways, it's not about what's being produced as how are we going to think about what our our larger artistic legacy happens to be. So one of the issues that uh, was very much uh, prioritized at this time was to think less less about modernity as something that was necessarily teleological. So it wasn't about advancing towards a goal. It wasn't about innovation. It wasn't about progress. A lot of that refusal to think along those lines also coincide with what at that time was the South Korean state's kind of relentless drive towards progress, towards achievement, towards accomplishing some kind of goal. And a lot of these artists were saying, no, this is not, this is not the, the way to think about what is it that modernity actually entails. It's something that's much more about, well, how do we come to terms with all these different conflicting strands that are, that, that, do that uh, comprise uh, how it is that we think about, say, abstraction or, say, painting. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Now, you talk about the consideration of Tansequa as abstract painting here in this first um, introductory chapter of the book. And you talk uh, as well about the ways that Korean artists were shaping their work around kind of practices and modes of gestural abstraction that they associated with uh, kinds of work that made up the kind of, or that existed at the kind of international standard of art making. Now, this leads into a discussion of the ways that these artists that you're writing about are contending with or attending to the sources and the circulation of information about what was happening in the art world beyond Korea. So what um, can you talk a little bit about that? What do we need to understand about that um, before we dive into the numbered chapters of the book? Uh, about uh, oh. about the ways that early on in the book, um, Korean artists were attending to the broader circulation of information and how they were getting information about what was happening in the international art world mm-hmm. um, so that this was then uh, shaping their encounter with gestural abstraction in their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing that's uh, kind of interesting about uh, the way in which information was being circulated is it was the fact it was very uneven. So, for example, a lot of the information tended to come in the form of these kinds of grainy black and white uh, photocopies where you couldn't really see the image, but you could read the text. And a lot of these texts are actually coming from, say, Japan or, say, France, uh, the artists that comprised what might be considered, say, the first generation of Tansukwa artists, were all uh, born during the Japanese colonial period. So all of them had some degree of fluency in Japanese, and they could readily access this text. So what's kind of interesting is this idea that their understanding of all of these different international movements, it's not not visually based. It's actually based on on these kinds of... uh, sort of uh, partial, necessarily partial, textual descriptions about how big it was or, say, what kinds of colors that were used or what was the impression of the critic that was seeing these kinds of works at that particular time. Great. Now, as we get further into the chapters, we really get into some of these really wonderfully evocative and gorgeous works um, that the book is so... um, copiously illustrated with. And so again, I'll mention for listeners, this is a book where um, there's a lot of examples of at least reproductions of and images of the work throughout the book. And they act more, they act as more than mere illustrations. They really form um, part of the fabric of the argument. Now, chapter one looks at the way some uh, Tansequa artists use abstraction, we just talked a little bit about that, as a way to consider larger issues of medium, of materiality, and of the experience and place of the viewer in the work. And we'll see some of these themes recur as well later on in the book. It starts from the 1966 solo exhibition of Kwon Yong Woo, who was an ink painter. Now, Being an ink painter in this period, as you talk about um, in this part of the book, was um, a matter of contending with a colonial legacy of ink painting that was informing and in some ways pushing against the work of the kinds of ink painters that were coming out of the Tansequa, um, at least constellation of artists. So can you talk a little bit about that, Um, the sort of the ink painting and in particular the ways that this opens up the relationship between these artists, maybe um, epitomized by Kwan, and the colonial legacy that they are responding to and working within. Well, the probably the, the simplest answer to that would be: so the colonial legacy is all it's, it's all based on a certain structure that's founded on various very sharp divisions. So divisions between what was called Soyanghua, or literally Western painting, and Dongyanghua. Uh, Oriental painting, or which included both ink, inkbrush, and uh, inkbrush painting and calligraphy, or say between painting and sculpture. Now, these kinds of divisions did not exist before uh, the Japanese occupation. Before, say, these kinds of divisions were institutionalized by the system of museums and exhibitions that were initiated by the Japanese. Now, there was, of course, the Korean War. So, one one thing to just think about is that when people say or identify post-war art, well, in in the Korean context, it really means post-1953. The war that people refer to is the Korean War, not World War II. Uh, now, despite the 
just massive destruction that was left in the wake of the Korean War, these divisions were still very much intact because as the process of reconstruction, reconstruction occurred, the model, the template on which a lot of this reconstruction took place was basically that left behind by the Japanese. So again, these very sharp divisions between one kind of medium uh, versus another or one kind of genre versus another, that, was, that then spilled over to another division which started to emerge in the late 1950s, which was abstraction versus figuration. And so one of the things that's interesting about, say, someone like Kwon Young-woo is that he is really kind of, he is really coming of professional age amidst all of these negotiations between these divides. So if his work seems a little strange, or actually at that time, very strange, the fact that he's using the paper one normally would use for inkbrush painting, but he's not using ink, he's not using water. He's, he's basically uh, breaking that holy trinity that's so inherent into how people are understanding ink painting. What happens is he's trying to think about, well, how do we think about these, how do we think outside of the these divisions? Why is it that one has to receive and just accept the structure that has been sort of almost taken for granted? Why can't say a f- something that's a pa- something that's understood as a painting, which in the Korean context of this particular time meant just sort of a flat surface that one looked at uh, just face on, why can't one think of that as something that's freestanding, as three-dimensional? And this is also an issue that will recur with uh, several other, say, artists associated with Tansekwa. Now, in this really um, evocative work with paper, where you can really see the concern with and the um, centrality of the viscerality and the materiality of the paper in Kwan's work, you can really visualize the and see the labor coming out of this work. And and going into this work. Now, in the work of another artist that you talk about in this part of the book, um, Yun Hyun Kyun, um, Mm -hmm. the Under Blue series, you mentioned that in that work, um, you can really see the time, or you can visualize time when you are contending with and encountering the work. So can you talk a little bit about that? The Umber Blue series um, and the way that the Umber Blue series asks the viewer to visualize time. So Yoon is coming from almost uh, sort of the opposite uh, perspective as someone like Kwan. So he's someone that's trained as a Western-style oil painter. His father-in-law is uh, kind of the, the, one of the godfathers of abstraction in Korea. But uh, all Korean artists, say until about the mid-1960s, were trained in both Western-style oil painting and ink painting, regardless of what they ended up majoring in. So one of the things that's uh, noticeable about Yoon's work is the color that he uses. So it's a combination of umber brown and ultramarine blue pigments. And if you mix these together, it forms a very kind of dark layer that looks as if it's black. Uh, but in, in the flesh is actually not. It's just this very kind of rich, extremely d- dense brown that's produced. Now, what he also did with these two pigments was to add a lot of turpentine. If you add a lot of turpentine to... Uh, uh, these these uh, kinds of uh, pigments, what will happen is that if you apply it to a raw, unprimed canvas, as you does, it will start to separate. So that temporal aspect that, you, that you're picking up on or sensing there happens to be this idea of, well, how is it that one can think about the speed at which, say, this paint moves through, through, through the canvas, but at the same time, the, the overall effect isn't, isn't necessarily that of speed. It's that of, say, passage. Yeah. So one of the most noticeable parts about each of Yun Hyung-gun's uh, umber blue paintings is the part at which you start to see that separation of the pigment versus its, its turpentine binder, that uh, kind of uh, uh, wavery, very jagged sort of line. So the, 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 the idea of a painting almost existing in stages, almost as if painting is itself uh, something that necessarily sequential. Great. Now, this concern with time, with acceleration and rate and pace and speed is also something that comes up in the work of another artist that you explore in the next chapter, and this is Ha Chong Hyun um, and the Conjunction series. Um, Now, time is really important to this work, and you talk about, um, in this part of the book, um, 
uh, Ha's work in the context of an awareness of the accelerated pace of the expansion of the Korean art world, the accelerated pace of the circulation of information, and the uh, concern with simultaneity that comes out of this. So can you maybe introduce us um, briefly to Ha's work, in this, uh, specifically in this conjunction series, um, and sort of lead us from the previous discussion of the importance of time to contend with the importance of time as it's manifest in this work? So Ha's conjunction series is uh, the earliest uh, uh, incarnations tended to be on this very coarse burlap and this burlap that wasn't woven very tightly. So what he would do was he would stretch out this canvas over four uh, four sort of legs that were essentially taken from a desk. He would stretch canvas over these four legs and he would reach from behind the canvas and push oil paint up to the front. So again, if one thinks about the temporal dimensions, this idea of, say, adding pressure and then kind of uh, forcing the paint to emerge uh, Emerge, say, and uh, kind of uh, rest on on top of the on top of the surface. That took a, a long time. So again, to go back to that question of labor that was brought up earlier, I mean, this is something that's really hard work. But uh, while this oil paint was still wet, what he would do was then restretch this canvas on uh, uh, stretcher bars and then mount the canvas upright. So while the oil paint was still wet, it would kind of start to trickle down the front, but it would trickle very slowly because if you have the kind of oil paint that Ha used, he didn't have that turpentine binder. It was just this really thick kind of white or occasionally sort of this uh, brownish yellow, uh, sort of almost as if it had the consistency of mud. So one thing that's kind of quite interesting is this uh, almost deliberate, say, or, or exaggerated slowness, which was very much in marked contrast with everything that was going around him at the time he in, uh, initiated the series. So Ha Jonghyun is a little bit different than someone like Kwon Young Woo or Yoon Hyung Gun, both of them who were fairly uh, uh, fairly inactive insofar as uh, uh, organizing exhibitions or being part of the Korean art world scene. I mean, they were kind of reticent. They were kind of remote, kept to themselves a lot. Ha was quite different. So Ha was the first chairman of a group that later proved to be quite influential called, uh, the official name is called the Korean Avant-Garde Artist Association, but uh, everyone called it AG for short. And this group was very much uh, invested in seeking out different kinds of information about overseas art, artistic developments. They had their own magazine where they would, say, uh, either translate bits taken from, say, foreign magazines, or they would say uh, be, they would say try to uh, come up with their own interpretations of what they thought were important artistic developments. And this actually gets into another interesting question about uh, uh, what are sort of the touchstones for these artists at this time. So a lot of uh, people like to compare Tansaqua to minimalism because, again, there's a, the, at least from what one sees of the artworks, there is a studied neutrality. There is a, almost a refusal uh, to elaborate further in terms of uh, you have, say, materials added, but then you have almost this uh, sense of restraint. But the interesting thing is that minimalism never, ever took a, had a real a foothold in Korea. It's very, very different from Japan in that respect, where in Japan, by 1970, you have, say, U.S. minimalist artists like Carl Andre being treated like celebrities. There's this wonderful story about Carl uh, Andre going to Tokyo and having people try to uh, uh, stroke his beard, for example. Uh, in Korea, none of that. Uh, U.S. minimalism, if, if it was mentioned, it would only be mentioned in the most pejorative of terms. It would be called, say, urban. It would be called citified. It would be called uh, uh, this is the, this is the art of a city that has already died. That's a direct quote from one of the more active critics at the time. For a Korean artists, the artists that interested them very eclectic. Uh, uh, Lucio Fontana, for example, or Christo. So artists that were very much involved in actually uh, manipulating materials. So Fontana is an Italian artist known for, uh, say, just really. Uh, 
using a knife to kind of cut through canvas. Uh, that kind of direct encounter, that was what interested people like Ha Jung-hyun. So when one thinks about this question of, say, acceleration or, say, delay, uh, which is another term I use, it's uh, really about, again, trying to think about uh, – how is it that one can one can think about one's position in this wider um, international art world? Uh, so the other term that you mentioned, simultaneity, is a term that Ha actually uses in talking about the art world in Korea of the 1970s, saying that there are many similarities, there are certainly many parallels, but there's no real sort of convergence. That it's almost as if you have the Korean art world running along one track, but it's not a track that necessarily is beholden to the tracks that have taken place before it, that there is a a sense of being in sync with the rest of the world, but not having that being in sync condition determine what's going to happen uh, in the future. Great. Now, um, you mentioned the 1970s, and in the 1970s, as you explore in this chapter, Ha was also inspired by, and, and he also engaged with, a Japanese group that was very influential among Korean artists at that time, and that was a group called Monoha. Can you um, maybe just introduce and say a little bit about this group and its importance to Ha for listeners who aren't familiar with it? So Monoha is a, a group that's based in Japan, and... Uh, it was more. It was more, say, formalized than Tansekwa ever was. Uh, not to the extent of, say, AG. The AG group in Korea had their own magazine. They had regular meetings. They elected their uh, officers. But the Monoha really had uh, a shared sense of purpose, and a lot of that sense of purpose tended to crystallize around the writings of a Korean-born artist named Liu Fan. So Liu Fan in 1969 wrote a very, very influential, uh, influential series of essays that later became a book called In Search of Encounter. Now, everything that unified the Monoha artists, it's really this idea, one, the refusal of making. So for them, art making or presenting an artwork was not about asserting one's authorial rights as I am the artist and this is my creation and you as a viewer must be subject to this creation. They were all about refusing that kind of mindset and instead their works were concerned with how is it that we can bring materials to get different materials or incongruent materials rather uh, together to form new kinds of juxtapositions that would be based or that would say celebrate the experience of the viewer. So in other words, how does one level the otherwise very stratified hierarchy between artist and viewer? So a lot of their works would involve uh, 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 say, juxtapositions, juxtapositions such as iron plates with cotton, for example. Just uh, pairings that you wouldn't normally think about, but uh, uh, pairings that would really kind of shift the burden of figuring out what was going on onto the viewer, rather than having the artist, say, perched from his or her uh, lofty foothold, lofty uh, tower and saying, okay, this is what you're going to be looking at. Instead, the Monaha were, uh, was a group that was really about okay, this is what uh, we're presenting, but we're not going to tell you what's going on. That's for you to figure out. Uh, But for, oh, please. No, no, go on, please. Uh, So in terms of the connection between Ha and the Monoha, so Japan was really the, the, the entree, really, for Korean artists looking for information or thinking about showing outside of Korea. Uh, again, some of the early precedents for this happened to be art magazines, Japanese art magazines that, that uh, were smuggled into Korea. So one thing to just uh, think about is the fact that Japanese publications, they're illegal in Korea at this particular time, partly because of again, the bitterness of uh, uh, Japanese colonial occupation. Uh, but by 1965, so by the by the time that uh, the U.S. basically told Japan, South Korea, okay, you're going to reconcile and reestablish diplomatic relations, even though the two of you hate each other. Uh, Japan then becomes a real portal for artists such as Ha Jong-hyun that's looking to show their work to a foreign audience. So the Monoha become, because of their stature in Japan by, say, 
really by, say, 1969, by 1970, this is really becoming something of a beacon for a lot of artists like Ha Jung Hyun who are looking at these works and saying, you know what, yeah, we don't have to subject ourselves to the usual, again, divisions between, say, painting or sculpture. Uh, We don't have to think about uh, artists as having to perform this obligation of creation. Why not not put different materials together and see what happens? So, And the fact that the Monoha's main theoretician was Korean, Liu Fan, and... uh, and that Liu Fan was actually very instrumental in helping so many of these Korean artists show in Japan. That's one of the reasons why it became such a real impetus for for Ha and uh, many other artists in Korea at this particular time. Now, Liu Fan actually forms the focus or uh, forms one focus of the next chapter, encountering Liu Fan in Korea and Japan. Um, You've talked a little bit about him already. One of his works forms the cover of the book. Um, This is a work called From Point from 1973. And this particular work that um, is shown on the cover of your book is one piece of a larger series of paintings called from point that coexisted with a series of, or that was, you talk about in the book, um, in uh, sort of uh, conversation with another series of paintings that he did, which is from line. So from line, from point. Now lines and points, as we briefly talked about a little bit earlier, really form um, a a major conceptual thread throughout the book. And they form a really important um, way of understanding what he's doing in these works as well. So as an entree into what he's doing in these works, um, these series from line and from point, can you talk about the importance of points and lines as they're informing uh, what he's doing here? So the point and line uh, are basic units uh, in ink painting. So every painting in say the ink painting medium begins with a point and if you have enough of those points they will accumulate into a line now a lot of his writings and this is actually not just exclusive to Liu Fan but uh, other ink painters have also talked about the importance of these two uh, units or even perhaps tropes uh, mainly because uh, one for for a lot of these artists, the, the real issue is to think about how is it that some how how do we think about different kinds of scales, and this question of scale becomes very important. Say in this period, so this larger period of the sixties and seventies, where you have say Korea kind of being thrown out into this larger um, international art world, but at the same time, you also have a real kind of sense of. Uh, of loss regarding individual agency. So this is uh, something I'm in some ways anticipating the next chapter, but this is a time when, of, when Korea enters into an increasingly dictatorial uh, or cut, falls under an increasingly dictatorial rule. So again, this idea of the individual becomes increasingly lost as the state insists upon the construction of this national uh, uh, identity that's supposed to make up for uh, whatever civil liberties are being suppressed in its name. So the, one, of the, one of the issues with the point in line, why that surfaces at this time, I think has a lot to do with that sense of scale or sense of trying to reconcile between different scales uh, in which Korean artists are placed. But in terms, in, in formal terms regarding the work itself, uh, one of the other issues is that a lot of these artists are thinking about their works in terms of details. So in other words, it's not the overall image that matters so much as how is it that the accretion of these small details can merge into some kind of whole that doesn't necessarily uh, doesn't necessarily have to be legible. So again, it's for them, painting is not a product. It's not something that's meant to, it, it's not something that's a teleological process. It's not supposed to end up in this uh, shiny finished uh, result, but it's rather about sort of the imperfections, about where is it that paint the painting kind of uh, becomes a little unstable, that it kind of falls apart. So that in each Tanisekwa uh, work, you'll see a point in which something doesn't seem quite right. So, for example, the uh, in Kwon Young-woo's work, so these all-white uh, uh, paintings that 
it's just uh, ripped paper, uh, the rips aren't, aren't terribly even. Or, for example, with uh, Yun Hyung Gun's umber blue paintings, there's a lot of, say, jaggedness that, again, it's him really leaving the work up to chance. That It's him saying, you know, I'm going to relinquish my control. I'm going to relinquish my presumption uh, as the author of the work, and I'm just going to let chance take uh, uh, Take uh, take my place. So th- there's a lot of say irregularity also in the works of Ha Jung Hyun, where again he uh, as he pushes the paint from behind the canvas to the front, that uh, the the drips or the were the marks they don't seem quite even. And this also holds true with Liu Fan, although to a much lesser degree. And part part of that again has to do with the fact that Lee is actually working from an entirely different set of circumstances than his Korean counterparts. Lee is someone who is born in Korea, but he moves to Japan in 1956, and he pretty much stays there consistently throughout. And so, the the, the impetuses that inform, say, the From Line and From Point works are a little bit different, which makes why they are they do diverge somewhat from other uh, works that have been considered as tansaqua. So, for example, uh, one thing to think about with Liu Fan's works is that he uses uh, mineral pigment. So, all those points and lines, it's not made with oil, it's not made with acrylic, it's not made with ink, but it's used. He uses uh, this combination of what's called rock flour. And this is a particular material that is inherent to the medium of Nihonga, or Japanese painting. So this is a medium that it was essentially invented in the late 19th century in Japan as a hybridized uh, sort of medium that involves quote-unquote traditional Japanese brush painting techniques, but also makes use of Western-style perspective and other techniques directly borrowed from Western-style uh, Western oil painting. Uh, now, the pigment that Liu Fan tends to use uh, in Nihonga proper, people, uh, sorry, artists don't use that much uh, mineral pigment. It's just uh, those colors, those bright colors, just kind of be tend to be used as kind of accents or sort of uh, exclamation points almost. But in the From Line and From Point series, he's using it entirely for the the execution of the work. So you see these bright blue lines just uh, 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 marked one after the other. Or in other cases, he'll use bright, almost sort of vermilion orange pigment uh, to kind of, uh, and he'll impress the brush so it uh, makes that mark one after the other. So it's a really unorthodox use of materials that, again, does resonate with some of the concerns his Korean counterparts are also dealing with. So the idea that why is it that we have to respect the parameters within, uh, within which certain kinds of media have always been constructed? Why not think outside those parameters? So in other words, why not take the mineral pigments of Nihonga that, is, that tend, usually tend to get reserved for uh, uh, or applied in very small doses, and why not use it as if it was oil? Why not, say, start from a position of abundance rather than scarcity? Now, one of the other works um, that really manifests or really embodies his interest in the role and the place of the viewer um, in the context of the work is this uh, piece that you illustrate in the book called Things and Words. And uh, briefly put, um, they come in the form of these really large sheets of paper um, among uh, other elements of the work. And it's really, really striking. And I just want to kind of mark that for listeners. So it's really, um, uh, you can find a discussion of this fast work in this chapter. Um, this is Things and Words, the title that's inspired as you describe so wonderfully in this chapter of the book by the work of Foucault. So there's a really interesting engagement with that um, kind of theoretical background as well. Now, this work really emphasizes his interest, as, um, at least as you present it in this chapter, in the place of the viewer. And this is also an interest shared by his close friend, um, whose work makes up a centerpiece of the next chapter. This is Park Seobo. Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly? Park, uh, Park Sobo, yes. Park Sobo, okay. So Park, Park Sobo is also interested in his work um, in the viewer's relationship to the artwork. And one of the series uh, that he does is described by a critic that you quote in the chapter as being one of the three most important works of Korean art since independence from Japan. Can you introduce us a little bit to his work um, and perhaps um, the importance of the uh, his conception of the viewer's relationship to the artwork as it manifests therein? So Pak Sobo is... Uh 
quite unlike uh, he, he's more in the vein of say Ha Jung Hyun in, in the sense that he's sort of the godfather of the Korean art world. He's the one who gets Liu Fan his first real break in Korea when uh, he he and Lee first meet in. Uh, uh, in the late 1960s in Tokyo. Uh, so he's, this is an artist who is probably more invested in trying to promote Korean contemporary art overseas than any other artist in, uh, at least in the first few decades uh, of post-war Korean art. And so for him, it was very, very important to think about, uh, say, what is, it, what, what is it exactly that Korean art sort of brings to the table? Now, his the work that he produces is a series of paintings, oil paintings, that's originally called Nobo. And in Korean, literally, that means law of depiction. And what these paintings entail are they're uh, large canvases, canvas, uh, canvases that have been uh, covered with uh, layers of usually very sort of creamy, yellowish, sometimes grayish paint. And while the paint is still drying, he'll go over each canvas with uh, usually a very sort of blunt-tipped uh, a graphite pencil, something that's very, very thick. And he'll just make these uh, either... Uh, sort of a wave-like marks or sort of these curly cues, very early versions. Uh, the marks tended to be very tentative, almost like as if they were just these very delicate uh, uh, tally marks. Uh, but the end result of all of these works is a, a, really an experience of illegibility. They're very, very hard to reproduce properly. So one thing that uh, is very noticeable in the book is that they almost look kind of washed out. <laughs> and uh, part of that, again, has to do with the fact that, uh, again, there's limitations to reproduction, but that's also how they look like in certain kinds of, uh, um, certain kinds of lighting situations. So one thing that Paxobo, again, this is someone who's very savvy about the way his works are presented, is that he knows that if you see these works, which they're not, they're not stark white either, so they don't kind of pop out at the viewer, they sort of blend in into the wall, and if you're seeing it in say, conventional gallery conditions where the light is overhead, the, the marks will kind of almost disappear, almost seem to disseminate into the canvas, but you can still sense that there's been a disruption of some kind, that the, the, that sort of smoothness, the consistency one might expect with this color of paint has been disturbed. And the original installation of these works in 1973 actually had Pak uh, sort of suspending the canvas from the wall itself. So he would leave about a 10 centimeter uh, distance between the wall and the back of the canvas. So you had a real sense of its uh, kind of its, its objecthood. So this idea that again, uh, relating this back to the question of viewer experience is that this way of installation is a way for Pak to say, you know, this is not just, again, a flat surface. Don't read it as if it was a, a mirror image of the wall. Read it also as an object having its own sense of uh, uh, or own capacity of uh, uh, or own, how should I put it, uh, way of commanding, spa uh, commanding space. That this is, again, not something that should be just read as pure image, but we also have to read this as an object, as itself having some kind of, uh, of uh, a concrete presence as well. Now, he's also involved in something called the, um, or something translated as the National Documentary Paintings Project. And um, you reproduce an image of this work that he made for this project called Export Frigate. Um, it's really, really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about this project and perhaps as a way of opening up the larger political frame within which he's working? So the National Documentary Paintings Project is uh, was was and probably still is the single largest uh, visual arts project ever undertaken by the South Korean government. It begins in 1966, and it consists of commissioning artists, almost exclusively oil painters, uh, with the task of commemorating various historical, military, and uh, later economic triumphs of the South Korean state. And Pak Sobo, because again, he's one one of uh, uh, sort of the doyens of the post-war Korean art world gets tapped to do this project. Now, in Korean art history, uh, participation in this project has almost uh, been considered as a mark of complicity with the authoritarian state. But most of the artists that were involved in this project, they did so 
really for out of practical reasons. If you participated, you got paid a handsome sum, you got access to uh, very, uh, what at that time were very expensive uh, canvases and oil paints. Uh, it was a pretty good deal, in other words. So one just one sort of issue that uh, this fourth chapter uh, tried to deal with is to really think about that sort of binary of complicity and resistance in much more nuanced terms. Because if you see the work that Paxable actually did for the National Documentary Paintings Project, there is no question that uh, complicity is not is not an accurate term to describe his attitude because the painting is painted in it's one of the weirdest paintings at least uh, my colleagues have uh, told me that they've ever seen that's it's a uh, it looks like a conventional scene of a big export ship uh, but everything is so spelled out so literally that one starts to think of to what extent is this work a kind of send-up of this, the attempt of the state to kind of spoon-feed its viewers what it is they want them to believe? So, for example, the word export is spelled out, that uh, each person on the dock is uh, given its uh, his or her own space, that uh, boxes that uh, ostensibly contain goods for export. They're repeated over and over again to the point where you want to say, you know, stop. Okay, we, we get the point. You know, we, it's, it's about export. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, but uh, one of the oddest things about this work is the, the size. So there are two figures in the foreground, and they're exactly the proportions of a, an adult viewer who would have been looking at this. So again, one of the questions that Pak then opens up is, well, to what extent, again, are we as viewers, how, how do we figure into this landscape that the state wants us to believe in? How, how is it that, what, what is sort of our role? And he's never very clear about that. And I think that ambiguity is one way to think, think in more complex terms about this issue of resistance versus complicity that is so very much a part of how this particular period tends to be historicized. Now, as we move into um, the last two chapters of the book, we move into a chapter on uh, Tan Sequa and the idealization of Asian art, and this is chapter five. Some of these works were exhibited overseas, and what this chapter does is it looks at how these works become folded into a larger project to promote the idea of an Asian contemporary art. You talk about the, again, the political framing um, within which this is happening in Korea. Now, the history of what would later be called contemporary Asian art, as you say in this part of the book, can actually be traced to the emergence of a rhetoric of Tansekwa in Japan, France, and Korea in the late 1970s. One of the really interesting set pieces that comes out of this chapter um, is something called Five Korean Artists, Five Kinds of White. And you talk about the importance and the connotations of white um, not just in the way works of Korean artists are understood and conceptualized, but also how this becomes um, kind of a, a trope of contention. So maybe can you open up this particular chapter um, and what you take to be the most important things happening in this chapter by starting us off um, by talking about this notion of white and what kind of work it's doing here. Uh, so the exhibition you mentioned, Five Korean Artists, Five Kinds of White, it's often taken to be the starting point of Tansakwa. But it's interesting that it takes place at a gallery whose owner, a man named Yamamoto Takashi, the founder of the Tokyo Gallery, he's a person who's making his money primarily from selling antiques. And the catalog that accompanies this show really stresses a resemblance between Joseon Dynasty white porcelain and the common use of white by the five artists selected to show work, even though the white that they use are all very different. So, for example, the paper that Quan, the white of the paper that Quan uses, one can't really compare that to the sort of creamy yellowness of the quasi-white that, say, someone like Pak Sobo uses. And uh, the sort of an issue for Tan Sequa is that uh, in likening the surfaces to Joseon Dynasty porcelain, th those who are responsible for organizing the show were attempting to establish these works as a worthy successor to tr traditional Korean art on the one hand, which in turn was part of a larger project in Japan to establish what an ideal contemporary Asian art might look like in contradistinction to the West. 
So it's a very deeply, it's a very problematic situation, also given the provenance, because a lot of viewers would have linked that idea of the whiteness of the, these paintings to the observations of Yanagi Muneyoshi, the legendary Japanese connoisseur, who in 1922 described Korea as Korean art as being about the beauty of sorrow. And that's an observation he supported by pointing to how Koreans at that time were white, which is a traditional funereal color in Asia. And so for someone like Yanagi, this practice indicated a race that was perpetually in mourning. Now, Yanagi, of course, he died in 1961, but his writings and that description had been translated into Korean Uh, in 1974, so one year before the Five Korean Artists, Five Kinds of White show, and it was followed by scathing criticism uh, by Korean critics, again, who are very much upset about these sorts of characterizations, not so much of what they, uh, not so much of uh, what they implied, but the fact that, why is it that we're letting this guy, who again died decades ago, why is it that he's speaking for the entirety of Korean art? Where's our agency in all of this? But uh, another thing to also think about is that uh, not only this particular show, but other examples of Tansakwa were shown in first in commercial galleries, which were in Tokyo. So in, say, framing them as exemplars of white, as the uh, what is it? The, as uh, following up on the inheritance of Joseon white porcelain, one also has to think about the extent to which critics were trying to make these works understandable to an audience in Tokyo that's accustomed to thinking about paintings as goods, as commodities, and as goods that were offered to a distinctly bourgeois audience. Uh, the market for these, there was no market for these works in Korea at that time. So that's also something else to think about. Uh, now, one thing that. Um, is uh, uh, quite interesting about Tanzokwa painting is that they're really about, say, inverting, say, this kind of situation. So, in other words, about saying that the production of painting was secondary, was not, no longer secondary to the means. And I think this is eventually what starts to really come to a head with the various uh, classifications to which Tanzokwa has been kind of associated with, the idea that it's natural, the idea that it's, say, uh, uh, is it uh, traditional looking that actually looking at these works of the flesh really just butt heads with the the way in which it's been classified. And I think the strongest Tansaqua works are those that uh, really kind of were able to fight against the rhetoric to which uh, it's been um, uh, to, to, to which uh, it's often been sort of associated with. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a single Tansako artist who is immune to the rhetoric, but there are certainly a lot of works where even artists as deeply invested in promoting it, such as Paxobo, were able not to have rhetoric decide how the painting should look or how it should be made. But I do think it became harder over time because this rhetoric hardened into its own self-fulfilling consensus. And partially that had to do with the force of its detractors most notably the critics involved with the Minju movement that became very, very influential in South Korea in the 1980s. And the epilogue actually talks a little bit about the Minjong movement um, and the emergence of a kind of contextualism um, after its ascent. The epilogue also looks at the idea of a global art world, a global art world, um, rather from the perspective of the reception of Tansaikwa art in the 1980s and after. And you look into um, sort of the, the 1980s as a turbulent political time and the way this is informing what's happening and also um, into the global turn of contemporary art and the relaxing of restrictions on overseas travel by South Koreans in the 1990s. Now, among the many really fascinating things happening in this epilogue is the introduction of the work of some really fascinating artists. Um, so I'd love to talk about all of them, but I don't want to again keep you for another hour. So I'll just bring up the work of um, an artist, Kim Suja whose work features really vibrantly, brightly colored fabric and is actually really quite different um, from the kind of work that we see earlier in the book. So could you maybe kind of bring us to um, the conclusion of the book, rather the epilogue of the book and the conclusion of our discussion about it, by talking a little bit about um, Kim Suja and, and the kinds of artists that are emerging in this last stage? And um, what do we need to understand about this work to understand the larger transformations that you're recounting here in this last part of the book. 
So Kim Soo-ja is actually a student of Paxobos. Uh, today, she's probably one of uh, probably the, one of the five most best-known contemporary Korean artists today. Uh, sorry, working um, internationally, she represented Korea at the Venice Biennial, and she's mostly known for works in which that involve the wrapping of cloth. And one wouldn't normally associate the wrapping of cloth with, uh, say, abstract painting. But one thing that uh, one link that I really tried to emphasize is this idea of Again, how is it that how is it that someone like Kim Suja is taking this uh, Tansakwa's emphasis on materiality, on say how is it that materials engage with one another, and being able to resituate that using different materials, or in this case, fabric? So, for example, she uh, in, engages with a lot of folding. She's very attentive to surfaces, and I don't think that these issues are say completely alien to what it is that she had been exposed to in an earlier period. Uh, but one thing about Seitan Sequa that was, there are three sort of main kind of uh, takeaways in terms of Tansakwa's legacy. One, and most importantly, again, is this issue of, well, how, how do things come to be? So the idea that one can't take the painting or abstraction or, say, medium for granted a lot of Tansakwa's works are very introspective in terms of it's really about taking apart sort of the basic assumptions as as to well how do we come to this point you know, what 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 actually goes into a painting is it just paint slapped on a canvas or how is it that the canvas can be made to behave in a different way the second takeaway is uh, that Tansakwa really is the first major face of contemporary Korean art um, after uh, after the Korean War. It's the first movement to be promoted overseas. And it, in many ways, it sets the tone for how later artists, say, enter into the conversation, or in many cases, refuse to enter into the conversation. So... There are a lot of, say, other artists in Korea that don't want to be considered contemporary Korean at all, in part because of the extent to which the Tansakwa rhetoric has, say, privileged cultural difference as the primary index by which one is uh, getting into the work. And that's kind of a contradiction to what the, the Tantaqua works were act, actually were, because the works are not about cultural difference at all. In fact, it's really about viewer accessibility. But the rhetoric that was used to promote Tantaqua, it really turned off an entire generation of artists who were saying, you know, I don't want to be known as uh, some, some person who makes natural Korean-looking uh, uh, exotica for uh, uh, Western or Japanese consumption, consumption. I want my works to be considered as independent and autonomous of that. So that's also sort of another interesting thread. Uh, the third, ta- uh, the third takeaway is. Uh, the, again, the, the, the question of uh, how is it that one is going to position oneself in an exhibition? So this is a movement that was promoted through the vehicle of the exhibition, which is, of course, very different than what had taken place, say, before, uh, before the emergence of Tansakwa. So you had all these big group shows and the way in which these works were arranged. This was something that became very important to not only uh, to Tansakwa artists, but to artists who are coming in their wake. Uh, It becomes increasingly more important, say, after the 1990s, when the idea of a non-Western modern art started to gain a little bit of momentum, say, in the West. Great. Now, uh, earlier on when we were talking, you mentioned that the book has actually created a market for post-war Korean art. So as we um, come to our conclusion, can you talk a little bit about what's happened since um, your book has been published and some of these broader ramifications that you've seen? Uh, I think uh, to, to actually say that the book created a market, it may be a slight exaggeration, but uh, I am pleased that it has contributed to a greater awareness of Tansakwa. So the book came out in the summer of 2013, and very soon after, I'd been approached by a Los Angeles gallery called Blum and Poe, which is uh, perhaps best known for their very successful promotion of Monoha and perhaps even more for their uh, championing of uh, Takashi Murakami and Yoshitomo Nara, uh, to, uh, probably the world's best-known ja- contemporary Japanese artists. And they had approached me to do a show in their um, L.A. space. Now, at that time, there was another gallery, so Korea's flagship gallery, Kukche Gallery, was also planning their show. And they also then they decided to move the timing of their show to co- 
all practically coincide with the timing of the show in L.A. And so what that happened, it was it really kind of sparked a, a lot of interest in in Tansukwa as uh, it both in Korea, but also outside of Korea as well. So one thing that uh, happened was a lot of institutional interest. So interest expressed from by uh, museums that were not in Korea. And this is something that's really unprecedented in the in the uh, history of uh, not only Tansukwa, but post-war Korean art, that people are looking uh, or, again, taking the time to re-examine a period that really, for most of its history, was completely neglected. So this is something for me that I feel very uh, proud of to to have contributed to this re-examination of uh, this particular uh, time. So, Joan, thank you so much um, for donating so much of your time to talk about the book. Now, there's so much going on in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily, um, really wonderfully rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about uh, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, One of the things I'd like to uh, just mention very briefly is that this book is in many ways is not written for um, special. It's not written for, say, a Koreanist audience. This is a book that its primary audience is is my home discipline, art history. But its its primary discipline is really for anyone that's invested in, in thinking and looking closely at objects per se. So I think one of the real issues in, say, expanding the field of post-war Korean art is to have histories of art that really look outside its kind of its own immediate uh, perimeters to to engage, say, specialists working in other fields. So in other words, when I was writing this book, the question I had was, well, why would, say, I don't know, a history, historian of Latin American modern art be interested? What is it that this work has, how does this work, say, resonate with its uh, counterparts um, in other, uh, being made in other uh, times, but which could possibly share similar commitments or similar interests. And I think this is a really kind of critical next step, not just for post-war Korean art history, but also post-war Asian art history in general, is to really think of, think beyond the regional framework. How is it that one is going to be able to, again, pay a close enough attention to the object that the object be, be, kind of becomes its own entity that's greater than sort of the sum of its contextual forces? And now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on a very beautiful book. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Uh, so I'm actually in London because I'm doing a visiting fellowship at the Tate uh, Museum, which has a Asia Asia Pacific Research Center. And so in December, I'm giving a talk on performance in Yushin, Korea. So the, the turn towards why is it that so many artists also uh, think about performance-based artworks as a way in which to negotiate some of the travails of everyday life in perhaps Korea's most darkest time. So this is a time when all kinds of civil civil liberties uh, repressed, outright protest was uh, something that was very brutally suppressed. So what is it about, say, gesture and certain engagements with the body that allow these artists to think otherwise about this very, very difficult period? Well, thanks so much. Thanks again for making the time to talk, and it's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.